Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of The Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, use, or think about AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I am your host, Daniel Bashir, and in this episode, I'm excited to be interviewing Kanjin Chiu and Josh Albrecht, CEO and CTO of Generally Intelligent. Generally Intelligent is an AI startup aiming to develop general-purpose agents with human-like intelligence that can be safely deployed in the real world. Kanjin and Josh have played these roles together in the past as CEO and CTO of AI recruiting startup Sorceress. Kenjin is also involved with Building the Neighborhood, a community in San Francisco, and together with Josh, invests in early-stage founders at Outset Capital. This was a really wonderful conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed hearing Kenjin and Josh's perspectives on many topics you've seen on the podcast recently, and their approach to building systems that demonstrate more general intelligence than those that we see today. As always, if you aren't already subscribed to The Gradient, go ahead and follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can also follow us on Substack, where you'll get notifications whenever we release a new podcast episode, article, or newsletter. And now, without further ado, Kenjin Chiu and Josh Albrecht. Kanjin, Josh, I want to thank you both for joining me today. And I will start with our usual tired first question, which is how did the two of you get into AI in the first place? Yeah, so I'll, I'll start because my background is a little bit easier and, and more traditional. So I got into it sort of the boring way as a, as a kid. I, you know, I play a lot of video games. And actually, at one point, my dad was like, oh, you know, if you want a new computer to play more video games, you can just go through this 1,000-page book about C++ and do all the examples, and I'll get you a new computer. And nice. so vacation later, I had a new computer, and then it was more fun to program instead. I actually did a lot of, like, working with, you know, how can I make, like, AI for my games, and then kind of got into that in college. And I, I did research uh, on, actually, machine translation and evaluation um, and published some papers and stuff, but then felt like, you know, this was a long time ago, back when, like, support vector machines were the cool thing. So... Uh, it didn't really feel like people were going to use this in the real world and was going to have an impact on the real world. So uh, after kind of getting my master's, I decided, you know what, I'm going to go in industry instead uh, and kind of apply this stuff in the real world. So uh, I did more practical kind of AI and software engineering, um, a little bit on uh, 3D printing and manufacturing, sort of AI applied to that. And then um, after that, uh, working with Kenji, we worked on a company called Sorceress where we applied machine learning to hiring. Uh, trying to make it a little bit easier for recruiters to find people who would be a really good fit for a job. So uh, my background's, you know, a little bit academic, a little bit um, applied. And so I, I, I like that I have at least a little bit of experience in both of those. Mm. Yeah, and I, I think I cannot remember a time when I was not curious about why humans behave the way that they did. I think like the driving question in my entire life has been like, what drives human behavior? What causes people to behave a certain way? What is going on in our minds? Uh, and so when I was young, I was always wondering about this. And then sometime in maybe college or high school, um, I was like, it'd be cool if we could build a mind. I, was I took some AI classes at MIT and I was like, this is terrible. Um, this is back in 2010, 2011, um, before deploying. 
And so uh, during MIT, I did a bunch of high-frequency trading. And uh, in high-frequency trading, actually, we used hidden Markov models, and we also um, I also experimented with a bunch of machine learning techniques. And after that, uh, I took a break from kind of AI, the, the technical part of AI, for a few years. I went to Dropbox. I became the chief of staff. Uh, I dug really deep into, like, how do humans function? And then in 2016, Josh and I were starting our second company, and we were thinking about recruiting, which we'd both done a lot of. And we really felt like, you know, this process that we do where we're searching the Internet, finding people, that seemed like something language models could help with. And so then we built Sorceress, which was an AI recruiting company, and then ultimately uh, came to General Intelligence. So it sounds like in some ways you two had almost a complementary set of routes to getting towards AI. So Josh, from your side, you had this very technical introduction. You were mm -hmm. playing games, doing a lot mm -hmm. in C++. And then Kanjun, you were thinking about it from the intelligence, how do humans function and behave aspect first. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I always tell people I'm a psychologist first and a computer scientist second. <laughs> <laughs> I love that articulation. Do you feel like that that kind of complementary aspect of how you two began to think about these things, do you think that still sticks with you today and the ways you interact and collaborate? Yeah, I think it's a huge part of uh, how we think about it, actually, uh, generally intelligent. We, we like to say that we take a sort of a little bit of a broader approach, maybe a little bit like DeepMind in that, you know, we're inspired by neuroscience and evolutionary psychology and infant psychology and all these other fields. We think there's a lot of interesting things that you can learn from that that you can apply to the problem. Yeah, and we also, our approach is really to work on human-like intelligence and then to figure out how to mirror human-like capabilities in a system that can safely solve problems in the real world. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of people are okay with an AI that is, you know, fails in weird ways and behaves very much like a machine. Um, and I think from our interaction with humans and how humans have interacted with AI systems, we feel a human-like AI system it has tons of benefits um, when it comes to productizing. Yeah, that idea of a human-like AI system is really important and something I do want to spend some time on later. But first, perhaps let's actually work our way there just a little bit. So you two worked on this AI hiring company, Sorceress, together. Can we step back a little bit just to get to the story of how you two met and first started working together? Um, this is kind of a, a very nerdy thing to say. We met at a rationality party after party. As a rationality workshop mm -hmm. after party. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a group in Berkeley called the Center for Applied Rationality. Yeah. And I was, Josh went to the very first workshop. I went to one in 2013, 2014. And Josh showed up at the alumni party. And we got to talking about all sorts of things, about the far future, about uh, creating galactic art. And it was just like a great mind meld. Uh, and so ultimately that led to us start deciding to become co-founders a year and a half later. That's a really wonderful story. I I don't know if he was involved with the Center for Applied Rationality, but one of my old lab mates from college, Evan Hubinger, is very involved in AI safety right now. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you two are familiar with the whole idea of like inner optimizers and Mesa yeah. optimization, but he, I think, published the first research paper that really kind of laid the groundwork for that. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, a lot of a lot of interesting uh, safety and alignment uh, work came out of uh, that field or of that that like group of people and set of people. Yeah, yeah. 
kind of going forward from this, you two worked on Sorceress for a while. I'm curious what you learned from that experience starting this AI-focused hiring company. I think that there, one thing that comes to mind for me and possibly for some listeners too is there have been struggles with the idea of using AI for hiring in the past. I know that like Amazon has this famous story of mm-hmm. being like, wait, we're, we're literally just hiring the same profile of like everybody who already works here. And so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious if those sorts of concerns came up for you two at all and what you learned. Yeah. So when we first started Sorceress, the mission was really, can we find people from untraditional backgrounds that would be a good fit um, and where maybe a recruiter's not looking for those keywords or they don't have the keywords on their resume, but it looks like someone who you know could be really good. Um, and actually, we had an algorithm that ended up being really good at finding really unusual people. Um, but what we found was that actually, unfortunately, the bottleneck was on the recruiter hiring manager side where recruiters and hiring managers, they just weren't excited to talk to people who didn't look like they were good. Um, that the algorithm was surfacing. Um, And there are a lot of other kind of like very manual issues in the hiring process. Um, And so ultimately, you know, AI can potentially one day be a good way to solve hiring, but not today. I think another thing, uh, a big thing actually that we came away with two very big things from it. One, it gave us a very good respect for like the difficulty of applying these things to tricky problems like recruiting in the real world. And I think when we think about this stuff at Generally Intelligent, part of what inspires us is actually making systems that will really be able to make progress on these types of problems. Um, so I think that was, that was a big thing that we came away with. Yeah, building on that, there was a lot of human judgment that went into like what a candidate was like. And um, that was part of the inspiration of human-like. Uh, another thing is recruiters and hiring managers, they really disliked uh, black boxes. And working with a black box system that would just spit out stuff that couldn't explain you know, why that was really hard for them. Yeah, I think, and that was the second thing I was going to say is, wait, we got a much uh, better sort of healthier respect for like hybrid human and AI interactions and the importance of like making these systems work together really well. Yeah, what you just said, Josh, about hybrid human AI interactions is what I was going to call out myself and what you both just said there, because I believe it's, it's probably situation specific, but it seems like there are so many ways for that to go wrong. And so when you are thinking about designing an AI system that at the end of the day is going to be used by humans or is going to have to make decisions together with them, then it's like you have to expand the scope of the thing you're actually building, right? It's not just the AI system, but the entire AI human system. And so you have to take into account things like what you were saying earlier, maybe some people don't like working with black boxes, but then maybe some people would just tend to put too much trust into those systems. And then you have to start designing around those those human responses too. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So let's start moseying over onto Generally Intelligent, your very interestingly named startup. And I'd love to hear where the ideas for this company first started forming and how it got started. Uh, I can I can start. Sure. So Generally Intelligent is an independent research company uh, with very long-term funding. And we're trying to develop general purpose AI agents that have human-like intelligence and can learn to safely solve problems in the real world. Where it started was a few observations. One observation was, huh, it's interesting. You know, there are a lot of things three-year-olds can do. One of our researchers has two kids, young kids, and there are lots of things that they understand and can do that AI systems can't do. So that was one a few years ago, 2020. 
Um, and a second was, you know, maybe we could actually construct an environment. And if we construct the problems correctly, um, then maybe we'd be able to find a solution that's able to solve all these problems. And if it's able to solve a wide variety of problems in a wide range of environments, you know, maybe that's kind of akin to human intelligence. Yeah, I and mean, all these ideas came from, you know, both Ken Jun and I thinking about this for a long time. I actually remember uh, back in the 90s uh, in middle school, my friend read uh, Ray Kurzweil's The Singularity is Near. And we were like, oh, that AI stuff seems important. Uh, so, so pretty much ever since then, I've been kind of thinking about like, you know, how does this stuff work? How will this actually play out in the real world? And watching and reading papers, like one of the things I do is I, I read pretty much every title of every paper at every major conference to see like where the field is going. And then all the abstracts that are interesting in all the papers. So I do a lot of reading to keep up with things. And we were seeing as we were working at Sorceress, like these things are moving very quickly. And it's we're getting to the point where we actually can start making systems that can learn on their own and we don't have to have like these big teams of laborers, et cetera. Yeah, one of the things we were waiting for actually, so we lived in this big house called the Archive um, in the center of San Francisco and we were house, a bunch of our housemates um, worked at OpenAI and actually Tom Brown was the first author on GPT-3 um, and we were kind of seeing what was going on uh, in the field. In the beginning, we, we thought now is not the right time to start uh, a research lab. That was back in 2018 because uh, self-supervised learning on high-dimensional data didn't really work. It worked a little bit on text, but not at all on images. In early 2020, mid-2019 to early 2020. 20, um, 2019, I think. Yeah. yeah, I think MoCo came out. Sinclair. And then Sinclair came that, out. Yeah. And then at that point, we were like, okay, it's, it's time. Mm -hmm. And we think it's going to become huge, and this is going to be the way that um, things learn. And we were interested in self-supervised learning primarily because humans, if you think about how humans learn, most of what we're doing is self-supervised. And so that seemed really foundationally necessary for a human-like intelligence. Yeah. And then after that, we just sort of started digging in more and talking to people and getting other people on board and just kind of exploring. That's how we ended up where we are today. Yeah. Yeah. There, well, there are many threads in what you two just said that I want to pick up on. And so let's maybe try to begin from the beginning here. So you called this out earlier and on your website, your kind of stated goal is to, quote, understand the fundamentals of human intelligence. I think this is a simple yet complicated statement. And so I'd love for you two to break down for me just what that means to you. Yeah, I think one of the things that's kind of tricky about all this sort of research is that the words that we have are words that apply to people and that we've come up with and they make sense for people. So intelligence, understanding, reasoning, planning, all these things make sense for people. But actually they refer to like a pretty wide range of different activities. Like, Even in people. Yeah. So um, learning, for example, like you can learn how to swing a golf club. You can also learn when George Washington was born. These two things go in totally different like routes in your brain. They're entirely different types of learning, but we call them both learning, right? And so I think if we look at, you know, how does intelligence actually work? What we're really saying is we want to make much more specific terms for all these different pieces and how they're related to each other. So we really think about getting into the details and into the weeds of like, what are all the different things that people can do, all the different ways that we learn, all the different mental activities that we do, and how can, like, which ones are machines actually much better than us at? Which ones are they really good at? And which ones are they very much lacking at? And one important thing is we don't want to give the impression that we're like designing kind of handcrafted architectures, each of which does one of the components of human intelligence. That's not our approach at all. Instead, what 
do is we develop this giant array of tasks. I would think of it as an encyclopedia of tasks. Um, and these tasks are meant to get coverage on all of these different mental capabilities that humans are able to do. And so we're a little bit agnostic to the solution in that sense. Sure. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, we can jump into the particulars of how you're thinking about this right now in just a little bit. But one other thing you mentioned kind of earlier that I wanted to spend some time on is the aspects of what it's like to build a company like this in the first place. So you had mentioned earlier, you're looking to do something that's more of a long-term bet, not really including medium-term commercialization milestones. And this reminds me a little bit of what a company like Anthropic might say with similar goals in terms of not having immediate commercial promises. Of course, Anthropic seems to be more focused on the interpretability and studying um, these very large system side of things. But I'm curious just how you think about convincing people to back an organization like this and really trying to um, present the, the value proposition that General Intelligent has uniquely. And that was actually one of the, so one of the ways in which we were sort of lucky in that we had someone else that we knew who was really excited about our approach. Uh, I don't think that it's, you know, super easy to go out there necessarily and say, hey, we're going to do this really long-term research project that might not make any money. Uh, like, do you want to give us some money to do it? Uh, we were lucky in, in that sense and that we did have someone who was excited about it. Yeah, and also kind of enabled it. And our, our, our network kind of contains a number of people like this, which we're really fortunate to be in that position. And so, yeah, it's, it is unusual. Yeah. <laughs> we did not want to take money from VCs right now because, because of the lack of commercialization. Yeah, it does seem like there's a very particular set of investors who have a strong interest in companies like General Intelligent. And so I imagine that would include people who overlap with or are the same as people who back companies like Anthropic, for instance. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Let's sneak up on the idea of your approach a little bit. And so I think this idea of generalization and getting to human intelligence has been commented on quite a bit in the past few years. So Joshua Bengio has his own takes on this. He proposed the consciousness prior. Francois Cholet has proposed the ARC benchmark as this way to measure intelligence defined along psychometric lines. And then, of course, we have DeepMind that um, really just thinks that RL is all you need, as far as I can tell. And so I'd love to hear first, perhaps, how you mentioned being kind of approach agnostic, but I'd still love to hear how you think about this whole question of intelligence right now, and then how that's influenced the way you are starting to do things at Generally Intelligent. Yeah, so uh, we like the definition of intelligence as the ability to solve a wide range of problems in a wide range of environments. Um, you know, in theory, if you could construct every problem that an eight-year-old human can do, and you have an AI that solves all of those problems, then you should have an eight-year-old intelligence, right? Uh, and so that's kind of the philosophy behind what we're doing. And a second piece of what we're doing is, you know, the environments that we have today in, in uh, reinforcement learning and also in machine learning in general, they often look very different than the environments that humans spend time in. As just one example, uh, humans exist in a 3D world in which we move things around. 
it's often unclear exactly what task we're doing. We're certainly not doing like, what task am I doing? Am I gesturing? Am I talking to you? Am I thinking about something? Um, and so there's kind of this blend of, you know, different tasks that are happening at the same time. And we don't have a simple single goal or a single objective function. We have lots of different objective functions. And so there's this kind of uh, complex environment that we exist in. Uh, one of our hypotheses is if we can construct a similar sort of environment, say a minimal viable environment um, that is kind of similar to what humans are encountering, and if we can construct a lot of the types of problems that, say, a two-year-old or a three-year-old or a five-year-old or an eight-year-old can do in that environment, and then we can solve those problems, then in theory, we have something that is more general. Yeah, I think I think about our approach at a high level is like kind of the really boring way of making intelligence. Like, let's just list all the things that it means to be intelligent and then do all of those in the simplest possible way. Somewhat, you know, of course, there's a little bit more than than just that. Yeah. Um, you know, we have a particular strategy for um, for making progress on the tasks, and we also think that this battery of tasks is really important. At least in our experience, it has been really important for us to facilitate a much deeper understanding of the workings of deep neural networks. Um, it's almost a little bit like test-driven development, where we can have a network tested on a bunch of things. If it succeeds on some and fails on others. And so we can start asking why and probing into what's actually going on. Ultimately, we think uh, really deeply understanding the fundamental kind of theory of neural networks uh, is essential for engineering safe systems, just like you engineer bridges or, or chemical plants. Yeah, there are, I think, two aspects of the articulation you just gave me that I want to spend a little bit of time on just as far as the fundamentals, because I think that um, especially for people who have perhaps listened to some of the recent podcast conversations we've had before this one, I think that some of what you said is kind of relevant. And so the first one is that um, I, I mentioned Francois Cholet earlier, and one really interesting part of his definition of intelligence is the idea of skill acquisition efficiency. And I noticed that in your definition, you think of having um, sort of a wide range of problems and a wide range of environments. And so I'm curious how, if at all, the efficiency aspect comes in for you when thinking about intelligence. Actually, the efficiency aspect is really key to us. When we're thinking about the tasks, we're not thinking about like, you know, oh, one of the tasks we block stacking and then we train for millions of years of block stacking and now we're good at block stacking. What we're thinking is one of the tasks will be learning to stack blocks. So you've never seen blocks ever and now you learn about them and you're like, oh, cool, I guess I can make stuff out of them. So the like ability to learn within your lifetime and learn very quickly and like acquire skills very efficiently is actually like a really core thing that I think a lot of our current systems are really missing. Mm. So you want to capture that in our tasks, basically. Yeah, I, I think the other aspect of what I'm curious about is this, and I think that it's a little bit of a, of a divisive thing, but I know that in and of itself, I think the I agree with you that understanding um, especially modern neural networks is a really important problem to be solving. But then also it seems like there's this aspect of like taking a stance on neural networks is kind of the way to get there. But you did also say earlier that you're probably approach agnostic. I know that there are many people with fairly loud voices who think that neural nets are absolutely not the way to general intelligence. And so I would love to get thoughts from either of you on that debate. 
Yeah, I think like Kanjun said before, we're pretty approach agnostic, and so we use whatever tools work. We pull a lot of stuff in from the literature. We're we're very uh, willing to look out for other baselines and try things out and see what works. One of the reasons why we want this really general battery of tasks is so that we can test things out and see what works. We don't we're not coming to it with a solution. I think maybe one way that we're different from sort of the you know Jan LeCun or, or other people that have kind of proposed these cognitive architectures is that. We, you know, we have some ideas, but we're happy to test those out. We're not tied to a particular solution. We're tied to the set of problems. Like we want to make, we want to do the same things people can do. How we do that, we're very open about that. And what's interesting about the battery of tasks is that we can see, okay, this solution works better on these types of tasks, and this one works better on these. Like why? That's really interesting, and it says something about the different learning dynamics of different architectures. Yeah, yeah, I, I do like the articulation you gave earlier. This as like a test-driven development strategy. I think that's a really nice framework. Let's actually um, spend a little bit of time on the concrete tests you started developing. So one thing that you open sourced recently was this Avalon reinforcement learning environment, a benchmark for generalization and RL. Can you two tell me a little bit just about what this environment is, what it's supposed to accomplish? Yeah, so Avalon is a uh, really a simulator and uh, I think we say it's the world's fastest 3D simulator. Um, at least close at to least close. Habitat, which is also very good. Yeah. <laughs> I think it runs at about 7,000 steps per second at the moment. On a single GPU. On a single GPU. Um, all of our baselines train on a single GPU in around a day or less. And so it's meant as an environment in which other researchers can construct tasks as well. Um, we also, Avalon also has a benchmark, and that's 20 tasks 16 of which are kind of single single task, uh, and four of which are compositional and compose uh, the 16. And what's unusual about it is that uh, it has a shared reward function across all tasks. And in order to get an agent to do something in the environment, uh, really the environment is changed. So the agent needs to get food, needs to survive. Um, its reward is the energy at the end of a level. Uh, you can gain energy by eating food and lose energy by getting hit by predators or falling, things like that. And um, we perturb the environment in order to force you to do things like jump or avoid predators or fight predators to get food or learn to throw rocks or open doors, stack blocks, make bridges, all of these other things. Um, the environment kind of forces that uh, behavior to be learned, just like in the real world, you know, we're not, no one, most of the time we're kind of dealing with an environment and that's what makes us solve problems. Yeah. I, when I was reading, when I was reading your paper, I thought your approach to the compositional tasks was kind of interesting and in that you seem to construct them by having a very concrete overlap between what the tasks are testing. And one thing I was wondering if you've thought about or that you plan to extend to is the idea of compositions where tasks are not quite as intimately related, but I could identify something um, like a, a motor skill that might be shared between them, even if the tasks themselves maybe share less obvious structure. Yeah, so that already does come through in the uh, existing benchmark a little bit in that mm -hmm. the ability to navigate, for example, is going to be something that's very important for many different things or to pick things up. So we don't have like a special pickup task. You have to learn to pick stuff up and manipulate things, even though it's like kind of a shared substrate of, of different tasks. There's a little bit in there. We would like to do a lot more of that in the future as well um, and expand to, to more diversity of tasks for sure. 
Uh, but right now, this is already pretty challenging for uh, things. Actually, one of the things that's kind of funny about the paper is that we had to leave off one of the columns of the performance thing. Uh, basically, we left off the column, which was uh, no curriculum, because everything got zeros. So without yeah, like, the curriculum, it just nothing works at all. Because this is a very sparse reward. Like you only get a reward at the very end of this, you know, minute long episode for getting the food if you get the food. So it's really, really hard without the uh, without that. So we kind of want to, you know, you kind of need to crawl or walk before you can run. So this is a like, let's get this working and then we'll go make it super hard. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so one thing I'd love to know with this Avalon benchmark as your test for figuring out what approaches to try is where exactly you're spending the most time in terms of approaches to solve the benchmark. I know on your website, you've mentioned, I think this line that your research is focused on self-supervised and generative models that you're looking into theory like neural tangent kernels. And so I'm curious how all those things sort of cohere. Yeah, so actually a lot of our work is, as I said before, kind of pulling in other approaches from the literature. So we like to make sure that our baselines are very, very well tuned. Actually, we found that just tuning PPO uh, is enough to get really, really good performance, actually much better even than in the paper. We continued tuning it since then, and we'll have an updated one on there soon where it's like, oh, wow, just keep tuning it. It keeps getting better and better. This is great. So we always want to make sure we're like really getting our baselines really good. Uh, and then we're excited about, you know, self-supervised learning, uh, but also things that have world models. So sort of like Danajar Hafner's work like Dreamer and uh, work like BioExplorer and other works that bring in sort of curiosity-based rewards, like things that have world models. There's a bunch of really interesting work out there, and we want to pull all of those things in and sort of see how they do and then kind of mix together all those components. And after we've kind of pulled everything in, mixed together all those components, then maybe we can start kind of, you know, making up our own random architectures. We just want to first get to a place where like everything is tuned and like mixed together appropriately and see how far that goes. Yeah, that, that sounds like a really sensible approach. I think that the investment you're making into ensuring that the baselines are as good as they can be is a really good thing that I wish we saw more in the academic literature, as far as I can tell. So um, kudos for, for doing that. I'd Love to spend a little bit of time too on your approach to AI safety and general intelligence. So, from the story of how you two met, you two clearly have have interests that are related to this. And you said on your website that, and also as you said earlier, we have a pretty, we have a, a lacking theoretical understanding of like how deep learning works, um, let alone you know more abstract concepts about human intelligence and, and understanding, and so. Um, I'd love to know just how this safety policy aspect fits into your aspirations for the company and, and what you're building as well. Yeah, I, for us, it's a really important part of the reason we started in the first place, even. Um, I think actually, you know, some people look at reinforcement learning agents that are sort of acting and they're like, maybe you might be worried about like what they're actually doing. And we sort of share that concern and we want to make sure that if we're going to make agents that they do things that we're excited about and that they're robust and safe and we like want them to be acting in the real world. And so our kind of approach to strategy to safety is like kind of the same sort of practical approach that people take in other fields of safety, like in engineering safety, if you want to make a plane or a bridge or a nuclear reactor, like the way that you do this is by making these systems out of components that you really understand and that interact in ways that you understand with backup systems, with gauges and monitors and like 
you know what you're looking at, the, like the pressure and the like backup system for the coolant tank for the nuclear reactor, right? You don't just take a bunch of nuclear material and like pile it in a big pile that glows more and more. That's fine. Uh, also dangerous. Uh, so, you know, we want to get to that point where we actually could make these components. And I think that takes a lot more kind of theoretical research. So that's why we're interested in things like the Altamden kernel, things like these more theoretical things, but also those kind of theoretical things applied to reinforcement learning systems and agents. Can we really understand what does it mean for a system to have goals, to have different goals that it balances against each other, to have values, to take actions, to anticipate the effects of those actions? I think once we can get to that place where you're really seeing like, this is its goals, this is its plan, this is its actions, this is the anticipated side effects of the actions, like... At that point, we might start having a little bit more confidence in actually deploying these systems in the real world. Yeah, and in the ideal case, we're able to make predictions about what's going to happen ahead of time that actually come true. Right now, we kind of look at things after the fact and inspect the network, and we're like, ah, oh, the network learned this. And that's nice, <laughs> but it's not that helpful for any predictive action. Yeah, I, I think that these these questions of interpretability and, and predictability in these models is really, really difficult. Of course, we have... Some very smart people like Chris Ola working on mechanistic interpretability. But then when you look at things like post hoc explainability, we've seen so many studies that just show, I mean, again, it's another human AI interaction problem, right? Where it's like there's a person looking at this thing. How are they reading the data? Are they over trusting things and just kind of assuming that they know how the system works when there might be some misrepresentation going on there? Yeah, I, I think a big part of that is because we haven't really done a good job as a field yet of making components that can be easily composed and understood, etc. Right now, like, they're all just kind of these bags of hacks that like one hack balances out this other hack, but we don't even know what thing it's balancing out. I think once we get to a place where we start to understand like, oh, no, this is what this is doing, this is what this is doing, it'll be a little bit easier for us to, to make those kind of explanations. One of the things we do internally, actually, is tons of ablations. Uh, we basically like remove components of networks until uh, the simplest thing is working and working just as well with just as high performance. And so, yeah, that's something uh, we take very seriously is how can we get to simple things that perform well and understand what the what's actually adding performance. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right that the field doesn't do the best job of actually ablative analysis. I remember there was a particular paper, um, NFNets, I think, that proposed like three different modifications to, I believe it was it was either ResNet or ReskillNet at the same time, claiming some pretty good performance boosts. And this was out of DeepMind. And then they just did a terrible job with the analysis and like nobody knew what was actually improving things in the first place. It's, it's really I hard. That. I yeah. think we, we like to be respectful of, of other researchers and that yeah. it's really hard. It takes a lot of work and we can definitely understand why it happens. I think one of the nice things about our setup is that we don't have the same kind of pressure to publish. Uh, and so we can afford to take a little bit more time to do a little bit li more larger hyperparameter sweeps do a few more ablations and we'd like to we're excited to share more of that stuff with the community too as we go as things go forward yeah uh, we we also automate a lot of it internally yeah i think that the the structure of a company as being like a very long-term endeavor as opposed to having to think about short-term profitability seems really important there and i i guess i see that some of these problems that come up in the academic community of course they're not just confined to like DeepMind or or Google or company research labs in particular. But I do imagine that this aspect of I have this really short timeline, I need to get a Europe's paper out, I need to push this product out, 
certainly has to exacerbate some of the the academic sins we see in the community. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's unfortunate. I think this might be a good place to segue into some broader perspectives on building companies, on founding. I know that you two, as we've discussed, have worked together before. And I asked you earlier some of the lessons and thoughts you took away from Sorceress about building a company. I'd love to hear what you've taken away in terms of working together and working with other people that you think about today. Yeah, I think we've learned how to work together over eight years. Like (laughs) in the beginning, we were arguing all the time. Josh and I are extremely different people. We have super, super aligned long-term goals, super aligned values, and we have a completely different approach to problems. And I think that's actually the ideal situation. You know, one thing I didn't realize until I met Josh is that you want a co-founder who compliments you. But what that means is that they're going to challenge you. They're going to like Josh um, uh, really likes to think through everything beforehand and then come to the conversation with everything worked out. I like to kind of figure things out in the middle of it. Um, and so there was like communication confusion for the first year or two where we were like, how come our conversations are so unproductive and annoying? But I think the compliment has been extraordinary. Yeah, I think we've, we've both grown a lot from it. Actually, one of the things that I've gotten from Ken June is like someone who grows a lot at like a very fast rate. Like Ken June is always becoming way better than the Ken June of last year. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing to watch. So I, I've definitely taken some of that. And I think we've both grown quite a bit as we work together. And that's one of the things that we like to encourage in our team also. We care a lot about growth and about people being able to take time and being able, like we have paper clubs every week. Some people you know, can go on sabbaticals and learn stuff, like people take classes. As a team, we actually all went through uh, Sergey Levin's uh, reinforcement learning class earlier this year uh, and like did all the homeworks, watched all the lectures, just so we all be on the same page about RL and so, you know, to make sure we all had like, a basic level of understanding. Yeah, what I like to say is that you know, a lot of people, they're very proud of treating their employees as assets. And I'm like, that is such a low bar. Like an <laughs> asset is an object to own. And I really like to think about treating our team as creative agents. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to enable every person as much as possible. And they kind of like, there's this big puzzle of generally intelligent and they come in, uh, they find some gap and they build a whole new thing on top of this gap. Like, why is our hyperparameter sweep uh, so awesome? Why is it so easy to run ablations? It's like one of our team members, whole thing. Um, He's just really into it. Uh, That's like one example. Why is Avalon so beautiful? It's because we hired a head of talent who also happens to be really good at design and film, and she picked all the colors for Avalon. So there's a lot of stuff that uh, we do to try to enable people on the team. And I, I think like, yeah, on our working relationship, like we're very complimentary in a lot of ways. One thing that Josh is super good at is generating things. Um, so I often feel like I'm hitting a GPT-3 generate button I'll be like, I need like five ideas for this. Can I like hit the button and just give me ideas? And Josh would just like, give me five bad ideas. And then I'll go and, (laughs) it's amazing. Then I'll go and like synthesize all of it. That does sound like GPT-3. My ideas are slightly higher quality than GPT-3, at least for now. But, you know, maybe GPT-4 or 5, we'll see. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) I love that. And I think you two kind of jumped already into the follow-up question I was going to ask just about your your principles for building a company culture. So it sounds like you want this to be 
just very human focused and really trying to grow your employees as much as possible and allow them to exercise their unique talents or unique interests in a way that that benefits that long-term mission you're going for. Yeah, I think growth is exponential. It compounds in people. Um, and, you know, we want to invest just like we want to invest in the company over the long term. We want to invest in our people over the long term. Yeah, I think another thing that actually I got a lot from Sorceress was the value of diversity and having people with different backgrounds in the team. I think we care a lot about that. That you know, as we mentioned a little bit earlier about like, oh, from neuroscience and psychology, we have a bunch of physicists on the team. Like, we really like having people from different backgrounds come in, and it just it brings so much more than you know all sort of thing in the same way. I think it's so easy to get locked into. Uh, yeah, one of the things I like to say is like uh, each person has a really different spike, yeah. and um, you look. Someone came to me the other day and they were like, I kind of feel bad. I'm not as good at X as this other person. I was like, you shouldn't be. You should be good at the thing you're good at. Um, so everyone bringing in something really different, that's what makes a team a team. Yeah, it's it's certainly about the the complementary strengths people have there. And I love to hear this just because as we're talking, we seem to be in this very interesting environment for the tech ecosystem, right? We're pretty much... Every tech company, it seems, is taking a haircut, and we are seeing companies just sort of cut down to the bare bones if they can. I guess Twitter being a very salient example here of just seeing these massive layoffs, and I think this mindset shift of we have to really hunker down and kind of squeeze as much as we possibly can out of this smaller core employee base. Yeah, I, I think for us, the really important thing is having just an amazing high quality team. Uh, and so to get really great people, like we want to make a culture where they're really excited about it and where they care about growth and they, and they can like, you know, have a safe space to contribute and learn everything. So I think building the team is like the most important thing for us. Yeah, like as an example, we do a ton with a, a tiny team. And I think like a small team uh, that is really well built and also gets along really well can do a ton. Um, Avalon was built in two months with eight, nine people. Yeah. And this is just extraordinary. I did not expect that that could happen. Um, <laughs> it was a little bit the, of a push. but It was uh... a bit of a push. We all <laughs> felt like we were like staying up a lot uh, toward the end, but you know, we all took a big rest after. Um, we also do a lot of unusual things intentionally, culturally. Um, for example, uh, we, for all of our meetings, everyone simultaneously types in a document and um, so like for stand up, for brainstorms, everyone's typing all at once. And that removes the like uh, single channel kind of like uh, one person at a time conversation. It paralyzes the conversation. We comment on each other's comments, et cetera. It, all, it also helps to remove the sort of loudest voice effect, right? And you get to have diverse opinions from, from everyone, which is great. Yeah. 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 It's a really interesting set of practices. And to what you said earlier, I mean, a company that is doing anything ambitious has to have really great people and really great people are probably going to have many, many different options for where to work. And so you have to give them good reason. Like, here's why you should actually come work for us. Mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think a good place to begin closing this out would be you two have spent a lot of time clearly thinking about building companies. And so for anybody who's listening to this, who might be hoping to start an AI-focused company themselves, or just in general, start a company, what, what advice could you leave them? 
Oh, I, I have something that comes to mind right away, which A, uh, well, the most important thing, and I think this is another lesson that we learned from sorceress. The most important thing is to work on the thing that you're really passionate about. It's so tempting to like work on the thing that's hot or work on the thing that'll make money or whatever, but you're going to get, even if the worst case is that you work on that and it kind of works. Now you're stuck with this thing that's kind of working, but you don't really want to work on it. It's like really important to get the idea right. And I think it's kind of uncomfortable to stay in that space of, I'm not quite sure what I'm doing. I'm still exploring. But the people that I've seen succeed the most are the ones who are willing to stay in that space for the longest. I think it's really important to like make sure you're really, really sure about the thing before you like commit to doing that. And then when you commit to doing it, just just do that. So I'm, I'm always happy to talk to people who are exploring stuff. I think there's a ton of new things to do. So if people want to like brainstorm there or chat about it or yeah, want support John- going through that, that, you know, phase, please reach out to me. I'm always happy to chat about it. And I would love to encourage people to stay in that space for longer. Josh and I actually run a venture fund on the side and invest in percent to give founders a bunch of advice. Another thing I would say, just very pragmatically, like pick a market that is good. The market always wins, no matter what happens. Um, one of the things we learned about the recruiting market is that it has very high endogenous churn. And that is true of many markets. Um, some markets are slow to adopt things. Some markets are not growing very fast. It is good to be aware of what market you're in because the dynamics of that market will dominate your business. Another thing is just very, again, very pragmatically, like, you know, Josh said, work on the thing you're really passionate about. And I would say work on a thing that you believe in so much that you'll keep working on it, even when it's not working. <laughs> so yeah, same, it may, you may not be idea. passionate, <laughs> you may not be passionate about it, but <laughs> you believe in it so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's actually like of the founders that we think we see succeed, like they've done a really good job kind of continuing down the path because they really, they see something there. Mm-hmm. Another is early, in the early days, iterate a lot. Like we see founders settle way too quickly yeah. on an idea and just keep trying to bang their head against it when in fact they should be targeting a different customer where the like adoption is much faster. Yeah, I think that um, some of the key things there I'm seeing are, for one, what you were just saying about having this overall mission that you're tied to and maybe not a specific idea for how to solve it, which certainly also seems to be the way you two are approaching Generally Intelligent right now. And of course, for I guess anyone who has founded a company will know just what a slog it is. And you really have to have to stick it through. I think there's a lot of a lot of great advice here. And I want to thank you both for the time you spent to me today. Kenji and Josh, you're doing something really, really fascinating and interesting with Generally Intelligent. I and much of the AI community will be very excited to watch this develop and what you do. So Thank you both for what you are doing with that and for being so generous with your time today. Of course, it was great. It was great to chat. Yeah, super fun. And that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.